0: Okay, Jesse. last week's surprise double trouble was a wild one. What's the story this time around?
1: A successful Texas real estate developer and his aspiring actress wife struggle to keep their marriage together after years of abuse and conflict. When the wife disappears amid divorce proceedings, loved ones deeply suspect her soon-to-be ex of foul play. The truth will shock everyone involved. I'm Annie Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey, and this is Love Murder. Hi, Andy. Hi, Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about dirty deeds, sleazy greed, and
0: love gone fatally wrong. You can find Love Murder on TikTok and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. If you enjoy this show and you're feeling
1: particularly festive in this holiday season, please, please, please love slash murder a five star rating on your podcast app, subscribe and review. To help new people discover the show and to feed my insecurities, <laughs> my desperate need for external validation.
0: Yep. Also, if you're interested in supporting the show more directly, you can go over to patreon.com slash lovemurderpod, where you can learn all about the different tiers of support.
1: This week, we are so excited to shout out an amazing new set of patrons. Emma L, Kazi Louise F,
0: and Casey P,
1: Talia C, Talia C, Tahila C. Lindsay H and Megan M, Jill C, Nakia K, and of course,
0: Diana N.
1: Another awesome group of new patrons. Well, especially at the season of the year, we cannot thank you all enough for your ongoing support, whether you are just tuning in for the first time and giving us a shot, or whether you are one of our super duper patrons who we love so very much.
0: <laughs> all right, Jesse, what's this twist?
1: This is an interesting tale. I'm excited to get into this. I don't want to give away too much. Because I really want you guys all along for the ride. This is definitely one of the lesser known cases that we have covered after a couple heavy hitters over the last couple of weeks. So I just really don't think I should have any sort of preamble more than I do in my introduction. Let's do it. It was just past 7 p.m. on Monday, July 20th, 1987, when Mary Ellen Lehner received a phone call that would plunge her world into total chaos. On the other end of the line was a very worried eight-year-old boy by the name of Stephen Edelman. Stephen lived with his mother, Linda, most of the week, only two doors down from Mary Ellen. Stephen's father, real estate developer Robert Edelman, and his glamorous wife, Linda, had moved into the sprawling 7,300-square-foot brick mansion some three years earlier. All of the houses in the Tony University Park area of Dallas were gorgeous. But the Edelmans was not just grand but also gigantic. Mary Ellen had warmed instantly to Linda, a devoted mother and former actress, and the Laner children also made fast friends with Stephen and his little sister Kathleen. But Robert Edelman was a different story. His reputation as a grade-A asshole circulated in Dallas society circles for good reason. Mary Ellen's doctor husband steered clear of their new neighbors and wished his wife would have done the same. But Mary Ellen, a former nurse, was a helper and Linda Edelman was clearly a woman in need of help. As Robert's abuse increased, Linda had found the courage to leave him for good. Now mired in a bitter custody battle and angry divorce proceedings, Linda could use all of the support that she could get. The nights the children were with their father and Linda rambled around the huge empty house were some of the hardest on her, and especially hard on Stephen, the eldest child, who was both incredibly sensitive and extremely devoted to his mother. Yeah. The judge had mandated that Stephen and Kathleen would be able to call their mother every night at the same time when they were in their father's care. It was supposed to be 7 p.m. on the dot. Linda had never, ever missed this call, not once in all of the weeks that the bitter divorce had raged on, not once until that Monday night in July of 1987. Mary Ellen knew that if Linda hadn't answered the phone, then something was indeed wrong. She had sat with Linda so many times, waiting in anticipation, Hovering by the phone for that one very important call and she could tell by eight-year-old Stephen's voice that he knew it, too Oh
0: my god, he was only eight.
1: He was only eight years old and his sister was I think five or six at the time Oh god, the boy begged Mary Ellen to go check on his mother and she complied She hung up the phone and then she raced over to the dark mansion. She knocked on the door, no answer. She went window to window trying to see inside. Yeah. But it was completely still. And the only noise that was coming from the mansion was the haunting sound of a phone just ringing off the hook because clearly Steven was trying to call her over and over and over again.
0: Was it truly a mansion or was it a mansion in that area? Like, was it a huge, huge house? It's a pretty big house. It has one
1: of those circular driveways and they had the big like Hollywood kind of like when you walk in the two staircases coming down in the grand. And I mean, it's also 7,300 square feet. Yeah, that's gigantic. We could put like six of your houses in that. Yeah, literally. Yeah. (laughs) It was also three stories. So there's a book I use that we'll talk about later. I read some articles from D Magazine, which is, I believe, the Dallas area magazine, and it was really big. It was definitely what you would qualify as a mansion, but I guess some locals called it, like, the Amityville Horror or something. Like, it was, like, so big that it was almost egregious. Like, it was, like, not classy anymore because it was so big or something like that. Yeah. But this place is darn big and They definitely had built it in a way that it was supposed to be very impressive. It had a Georgian facade and like big columns, but also brick. And it was supposed to give you that illusion of a grand, timeless mansion and that the man inside it had certainly made it in his life. Okay, got you. All about appearances, baby. So she is going around trying to look into the windows, trying to figure it out. There's just the... Phone is ringing off the hook. Her car isn't there. So she's just hoping that maybe she had to run out. Maybe something happened and she just could not get home for this call. But that nothing worse has happened to her. But there was a little gut instinct because of the nature of this divorce and how contentious it was getting. And the fact that Robert had been abusive to Linda in the past. There was that little kernel of real fear. Of course. And she also knew that Stephen was feeling it because when she came back into her house to call Stephen back at his father's house, he immediately became hysterical upon finding out that his mother was nowhere to be seen and the entire house was dark. He said, something's happened to my mother. Someone has hurt her. He continued on saying, she's always there when I call. She's always there when I call. She always promised she'd be there when I call. And she wouldn't break her promise to me. So Mary Ellen heard Robert in the background telling his eight-year-old child to get a grip that he needs to calm down and get a grip on himself. Get a grip. And she just tried to tell him something that would put his mind at ease. She said, you know, I I think she mentioned that there was a friend of hers who had an emergency in Oklahoma, which is where Linda was from and where her parents still lived. I think she had to go to Oklahoma because of an emergency. I think she's totally fine. She just missed this call. I think it's all right. You need not to worry. But in truth, she had no idea where Linda was. She just knew that Steven's emotional state was very fragile, and she was trying to put a patch on it until she could figure out what was going on. So after she hung up, she called the one woman who knew almost everything about the Edelman's abusive marriage. She knew about their personalities. She knew their schedules. I mean, she knew the ins and outs of what the children liked and didn't like, what Linda's life was like in general. This was their long-term housekeeper, Razilla. So she had been with them for many years. And she was like a second mother to the kids. Okay. At 8 p.m., Mary Ellen called Razilla, I think they called her Ja, and told her in a very straightforward manner that Linda was not home. And that she had not been home to take Steven's 7 p.m. phone call. She said, When was the last time you saw her? I'm starting to get a little concerned. And Rosilla said absolutely nothing for a few seconds. There was just a big silence on the phone. And then she said in an almost whisper, That man has got her. He's doing something to
0: her. That is so
1: alarming. That that's because at this point, Mary Ellen was hoping that Rosella would be like, oh, she had to go to her parents and that that was the first reaction makes this situation so much more terrifying. Yeah. Indeed, the truth about what happened to Linda Edelman would not come to light for many more torturous days. And when it was revealed, it definitely had something to do with her soon-to-be ex-husband. This is a story of dreams gone wrong, marriages, compromise, money issues, FBI investigations, and undercover agents, as well as the enduring power of a mother's love. Are you prepared?
0: I mean, a little. Not really. (laughs) (laughs) So before the
1: Edelmans were a fabulously wealthy and terrifically unhappy couple in Dallas, they were just two young kids from more humble beginnings falling in love. Linda was from a small town in Oklahoma. She had been raised by good-natured Baptist parents with her younger sister, Miriam, and she had shown an aptitude for acting and singing from a very early age. These people are super-duper wholesome. Every year, they took a trip to Disney World. It was like their big vacation. Her dream was to get to sing in a Disney movie. That was the grandest accomplishment. That was her dream. So cute. She's very Disney princess, like singing in Oklahoma, like with little birds, like landing on her. That yeah. sounds like that's how Linda was raised. So she was very sheltered by her more religious, smaller town upbringing. And basically singing and dancing in Disney are just like it for her. This <laughs> is her dream. She followed her passion all the way to University of Oklahoma where she studied drama, and in the summer of 1967, she met a fellow student who was just tall and handsome enough to make Linda think that she had found her Disney prince. <laughs> Robert Edelman was from a middle-class family in Dallas, so when we get back to Dallas, he's a hometown boy. And he was about as calculating, serious, and brooding as Linda was naive, sweet, and optimistic. Okay. Very much opposites to track here. They met when, I guess, Robert was taking a summer course to try to graduate in lighting design. Okay. He thought it was going to be maybe an easier course to take. And she was in a stage production at the university. And in fact, the stage production had done so well that they were preparing to take it all over Europe as a USO show.
0: Wow. Okay.
1: Yeah. So that's kind of when they met. They immediately hit it off and she ended up going on tour and they ended up running up these exorbitant long distance bills because this is the you know, 1967 here. Yeah. And just talking all the time. And it was just very, it was a romantic time. If you think about that, if you have that romantic state of mind, like she's accomplishing her dream. She's touring with the show. She's singing and dancing on stage. And then at night, she's talking to this guy every night for hours that she had fallen in love with. And the relationship moved very quickly. Okay. By June of 1968, they were married. Wow. Yes. And she wasn't pregnant or anything. This was not about having kids because, in fact, that was actually a point of contention for them. Their families were supportive of the wedding, but they were not exactly over the moon. And this was because this was an interfaith marriage. Mm -hmm. She's Baptist. He's Jewish. And, well, it didn't seem like there was any sort of anti-Semitism or religious bigotry going on between the families. There was more of the question of how are you guys going to come to terms with raising kids and what holidays you celebrate and making sure to impart your cultures. And it's just a lot easier, obviously, for people, especially back in the 60s, you have to imagine their parents are more old school, saying that it was harder when you're trying to balance all those things together. And that was a problem. So initially, they didn't even know if they were going to have kids. And it would end up becoming a greater problem in their relationship because Later, Linda would convert to Judaism when they decided to have children, and they would decide to raise their children in the Jewish faith, and then she changed her mind because she felt so guilty because that just really wasn't her, and she wanted her children to have the same customs and traditions that she had had growing up, so then she renounced her faith and went back to being a Baptist and wanted her kids to go to church, so this will end up being a conflict in their marriage for sure. Okay. After the wedding, the couple moved to Dallas, where Robert got a job with Honeywell selling computer software. And she earned her actor's equity card and began to work with the Dallas Summer Musicals, which attracted a lot of Broadway stars and even some silver screen stars to do plays during the summer. So she has like pictures of herself with like Rock Hudson and all these famous Broadway performers. And it was just a really great time in their lives. But then he got an opportunity to go to the Manhattan office of Honeywell and work there. And they just thought this was a win-win. She was definitely a big fish in a small pond, but she could go to New York and try to make it on Broadway. So they decided to go to New York. And I feel like coming with the background of just living in Oklahoma and Texas, it wasn't so much that the city was big. It was that it was so gosh darn expensive. Yeah. So originally, he had very fine tastes, Robert. and. He's like, I want a doorman building, and I want this, and I want that. And like, he wanted to be like right in Manhattan. And the realtor saw their budget, and they're like, yeah, absolutely not. There's no way you're affording anything that you're looking at that you want. Based on your budget, they could get essentially like a studio plus in Queens. Wow. Okay. Already, this is not the glamorous Manhattan existence that they had imagined. And then furthermore... Robert tried to take the train one day, and he found it disgusting. He didn't like to be in the train with all the other people. So he demanded that his wife drive him to and from work every single day in rush
0: hour traffic. Yeah, I don't think Manhattan's really going to be for them. No.
1: I mean, can you imagine driving in rush hour four times a day from Queens to Manhattan? No, it's unbelievable. I mean, it would take her all day. She'd have to turn around and go back. He kind of demanded that she do that. And it was like a joke in the office because nobody other than like the highest executives had like somebody picking them up. And of course it wasn't their wife. It was their chauffeur. So she's going back and forth. She did get to work with this very famous singer who had trained all the best Broadway actresses. But unfortunately, that experience didn't really translate into gigs. She auditioned. And other than some bit parts here and there, She was not making it. And he was expected to be working pretty much all the time. He was in sales. So they expected him to wine and dine clients all night long. And they expected him to bring his pretty wife with him to also entertain the wives of the clients, to be there to make a good impression. And she kind of had imagined this whole like, art scene, like Beat like theater group people talking about ideas and movement and what they're studying. And instead, she was driving her husband everywhere, not getting any parts. And every single night until way late in the night, she'd be stuck entertaining people for his business. And they weren't really drinkers. It was just like really eye opening, too, because this is like very Mad Men. We're talking about the late 60s early 70s, so they're just tossing back cocktails and martinis left and right, and neither of them had really been drinkers, so they're like, well, this is a whole new world. So this is, in general, not going well. She was also really homesick, and when her mom and dad called and said, we're coming out to visit you from Oklahoma, they're like, we're bringing everyone, we're going to bring your sister, we're going to bring Aunt Ruth, we're even bringing a dog, and we're going to stay with you for a whole week or as long as you'll have us. (laughs) She's not even thinking about how they have this barely one bedroom apartment and how stressful this is going to be. She's just so grateful and excited to see her family that she says, Of course, of course. Oh my gosh, I can't wait. I can't wait to tell Robert. And this is where the abuse begins. So, this is a trigger warner for intimate partner violence, domestic violence. She literally ran over to him, bubbling over with joy. Like, she's like, Oh my gosh, I'm so excited. I got to tell you, my parents are coming. And he erupted. He's like, Your Aunt Ruth, your sister, a dog, are you kidding me? Where are we going to put them up? And you really did all of this without even asking me for my permission? And she was just so taken aback. She's like, I didn't know I needed your permission to invite my family to come see me because I miss them so much. And bam, out of nowhere, he cracked her one in the jaw. Wow. Like punched her in the jaw. She was completely stunned, speechless, and she couldn't really talk anyways because he had dislocated her jaw. Oh, fully, fully dislocated her jaw. Oh, my God. So when he realized what he had done, he, of course, started profusely apologizing. He was like, I'm going to take you to the hospital. On the way to the hospital, he's saying, I'm so under so much stress. I really don't like the city. I don't like what it's doing to us. I'm so sorry. I feel like we can figure this out. Maybe we can figure out a way to go home and have a different type of life. And I really want to make things work with you. And I'm so sorry. But if you tell people at the hospital that I did this, it would kind of ruin any plans of us leaving the city and starting over. So, yeah, because you'll get arrested. Yes. And he's essentially saying if you want any sort of future with me, then you're going to tell them that you slipped getting out of the bath and hit your face on the side of the tub. And I think uh, she was just so taken aback. Nothing like this had ever happened to her that she just went along with it. And they did end up going back to Dallas. He transferred to the Honeywell office back in Texas. She went back to the summer musical program. And there was a huge hope that this was a singular experience brought on by tremendous stress. But as anyone knows, life is stressful. Yeah. If somebody in your life is saying, well, I only drink to excess when I'm stressed, or I only do this horrible thing or hurt you when I'm stressed. Well, life doesn't get less stressful. So you got to come up with a better coping mechanism. It's not really an excuse. No, it's not at all. No. They're back in Dallas in 1970. And by 1972, Robert had landed his own very lucrative side business. So he was working for Honeywell full time at that point but he ended up transitioning into his side gig being his main gig because during the 70s and early 80s in Dallas, there was a huge oil boom. Essentially, there was like an embargo on getting foreign oil. So all of a sudden, Dallas was blowing up and it was still relatively not that built up for a major American city. So there was a housing boom. All these people are moving there and they cannot build houses fast enough to keep them in. So at the time, banks were just like making it rain essentially with loans if the person said that they were building housing. So he started doing that. He started taking these loans, building residences, and he became a residential real estate developer at this point. And he ended up doing very financially well. He hit the market at exactly the right time. So they ended up moving into one of the homes that he built. So they're living in one of his houses, they're really coming up in the world. And this was actually kind of an exciting time in their marriage. It was probably the best time in their marriage, to be honest, because she started working with him and helping him manage social relationships, design the houses, help decorate the houses, stage them, doing stuff like that. And she really enjoyed working in that capacity with him. And she actually really needed to be doing some of the social interaction because Robert was prone to rages. He had a horrible temper. He would just fly off the handle at any amount of criticism from his home buyers. Wow. He was also known for not paying his subcontractors. He would find some little non-thing that wasn't real even about why their work was shoddy and then just decide not to pay them.
0: You're going to end up running out of him.
1: Yes. Well, one guy actually, he was a cowboy and he did contract work and like traveled around with his horses, I guess, put a gun to his head. He said he went up to him and he said, hey, you paid me for one job, but I did three more. So you owe me quite a bit of money. And he said, I don't I don't think so. What are you going to do about it? And he's like, I'll show you. He put a gun straight to his head and he said, we're going to walk into your house right now and you're going to write me a check for eleven thousand dollars. Yeah, you're in Texas. You're in Texas, bitch. I mean, he should know he grew up there. I know. And he was shaken in his cowboy boots. Robert Edelman here. And he wrote the check and the guy said, it better not bounce or I'll be back. And this time I'll kill you.
0: Oh, my God.
1: And so later, Linda said that this was, like, very revelatory for him. He didn't really learn the lesson. He learned that sometimes you got to use force. Like, you should be the most threatening, not less threatening to get what you want. He was like, I ripped off all these guys. And the one that held a gun to my head and threatened to kill me is the one that got paid. So lesson learned. Yeah. Be yeah. worse.
0: <laughs> be more Scrooge. Yes.
1: Yes. So Linda came in and she managed all of the relationships with the clients and the subcontractors but despite her best intentions and attempts to get between her husband and the buyers there were still some huge issues in how Robert treated people. In fact, later on there was a D Magazine quote that said that a lot of times like his buildings later on he gets into commercial real estate would be flagged for having problems as far as like they would fail inspections. And one of these building inspectors said, well, it's like 90% real problems and 10% an asshole tax because he's such a dick that we don't want to pass him.
0: I'm here for that. Yes.
1: (laughs) Get along with people.
0: It's not that hard. It's not. It's
1: way more difficult to be a dick. Even if you have to pretend and just plaster a smile on your face and then just like bitch and moan to your dog or your partner later, just get through it with being polite, please. So yeah, there's one really terrible situation in which... They had sold a really nice house to a very wealthy and socially prominent couple. And a year into having this house, the woman in the couple had found that there were several things wrong in the construction. And she essentially went back to him to give him the opportunity to fix it, to make it good, right? And he said, Absolutely no fucking way. You bought it, it's yours. I'm not doing anything. I didn't do anything wrong. You're wrong like unleashed on this woman using crude language. It was very shocking. I don't think anyone had talked to this woman that way ever in her life. And she was really taken aback. And he's Jewish. They were very prominent in Dallas, upper crust Jewish families. And a lot of these families used Robert. And so she started telling people he is rude. He's crude. He's crass. He's also unscrupulous, and he doesn't do good work, so nobody should use him. I would not recommend. We're having all these problems with the house. So, of course, Robert found out about this. This got back to him, and he became absolutely irate. He became obsessed with ruining this woman. So Linda said that he would, like, lay around in his— and we know a lot of this because they do start going through divorce proceedings later— And there's a lot of he said, she said back and forth about this behavior that led to a divorce eventually. So he's obsessed with revenge at this point. And I guess this woman's husband traveled for work and he would just call her over and over and over again when he knew her husband was out of town and just breathe in the phone, like just uh, like menacingly. And it was driving Linda crazy, but she could not get him to stop doing it. And she said that the worst part of it was that as soon as the woman, like, broke down and started crying and screaming and being like, Edelman, I know this is you. Stop it. You stop it right now. He'd start smiling and laughing. He was getting joy and satisfaction about her terror.
0: Yeah, that's what he was trying to do.
1: Yeah. Well, he wasn't laughing for very long because eventually the woman called the cops and they showed up on his door and arrested him for making threatening phone calls. Good. Because she had started tracking the number. In the end, they managed to settle it somehow and she dropped the criminal charges. But that was an episode that Linda would never forget, obviously. And I really do think it colors the nature of the rest of their marriage and the rest of this episode. Yeah. In the late 1970s, Robert transitioned into commercial real estate, which probably was better for him. He was dealing with less clients one on one. (laughs) Yeah. Just like one really big client per project personal relationships. Yes. More corporate business relationships. Yeah. And Linda at that point kind of stepped away from helping with his business and really poured all of her being into motherhood. They had been without children in their marriage for a very long time, especially for this era. They got married in June of 1968 and they welcomed their son, Stephen, in November of 1979. So it's 11 years before they had their first child. Little sister Kathleen joined the family almost exactly two years later in November of 1981. Well, business continued to boom, and Robert built the gigantic mansion with the Georgian facade for the family to move into right before Christmas, 1984. Outwardly, they had every trapping of success. They had this ostentatious home in the best zip code. So, University Park is part of the Park Cities area of Dallas that I read about, and correct me if I'm wrong, Dallas people, but Or don't correct me. I probably won't come back to this subject. (laughs) (laughs) I think I looked on Wikipedia and University Park is one of the 10 most expensive areas to live in in the entire United States. Wow. Something like that, like top 10 or 12, I think. So ever since he grew up, he wanted to be in this area. Of course. Yeah. This was the cherry area. It's like growing up and watching like Beverly Hills nine hundred two one oh Oh, and thinking like Beverly Hills is just like the place. Yeah. It's like the Weezer song. You're just like, that's where rich people live. So this is where he wanted to be. And he was really happy to finally have achieved it. They also have these two gorgeous children. She's just so bright and entertaining. Like everything looked really good. But of course, we know that behind closed doors, things are always different. And the abuse had never stopped. So he was profoundly verbally abusive, according to Linda, not just to herself, but also to the children. She even said in a court record once that he screamed at their daughter when she was just a baby to stop crying, which obviously a baby can't control, saying, if you don't shut up, I'll kill you, from the very beginning. Now, Robert, of course when these court proceedings were going on, denied all of this. Absolutely, of course. But I'm going to share more from Linda's perspective, at least what we know of Linda's perspective. There was also, though, occasions of physical abuse outbursts. So when business began to dry up and Robert suffered some financial losses because the Dallas real estate scene started to turn and As it happens when there's a big boom, a lot of buildings went up and they even received loans, but then they were not getting leased. He had one huge project that never sold and never leased a single unit in a high-rise building. Okay. So now there's too much real estate and not enough people and businesses to fill it. And so now it's a crash. And I don't think he made all great decisions. It looks like he was really like 50-50. He had some wins, he had some losses, like any business person. So it was more really just the time of life here in Dallas. So he's losing money left and right. There was one calculation that said his net worth went from like $5 million in 80s money to something like 700,000. Okay. And as you can imagine, that would also bring a lot of stress into their relationship. Yep. We also have the flip-flopping of the religion. And I think around this time, Linda was trying to bring her children back into the Baptist church locally. So they have money issues. They have religious issues. And as Robert became more stressed about especially the financial situation, he became almost unbearable to live with because any little thing could set him off. Yeah. And one occasion, she talked about how they got into a discussion about their son playing t-ball versus soccer. And he wanted Steven to play soccer. And she was trying to say, but he really likes t-ball and all of his friends play t-ball. So who cares? He's, I think at the time, six years old or something. Yeah. And they were stopped at a train track and there was another car next to them. And he just backhanded her in the car. Just... Bloodied her mouth the whole thing. And she like looked over, and it was like this older couple that didn't even know what to do. They just were staring. So it was like stuff like that that would seemingly come out of nowhere. Just all of a sudden, she thinks, well, you know, he really likes T-Ball. Like she's just saying that out loud and then bam. So she just never knew when to suspect it. There was like another occasion where I think she had tried to get inside while he was like on a rampage. And shut the door and like lock it. And he pushed it open so hard that it hit her in the face. And like her nose basically exploded. Oh and she God. fell backward. And the children, Mary Ellen's children, had been over playing with her kids. And Mary Ellen's kids went home running and like crying and screaming and being like, there's blood everywhere. They saw it. So Mary Ellen is already very aware of what's going on with this family because her children were over at the house. And this is why her husband's kind of like, How about we just pull back from that relationship? Absolutely. Maybe the kids can come over here anytime they want, but maybe not the other way around. There was another occasion where she was getting ready to divorce. Like she was feeling like this is really not working out. This is not the environment I want to be in with my children. I don't want them to witness this. They're fighting a lot, obviously. And He wanted to take her for marital counseling, but he wanted to go see this very specific person who was at this like good old boys' club in Dallas, like a gentleman's club. And it's like the type of place where it's men only. So she would have to like wait while he was in a different area and then go to the area where they entertain the ladies. And she said, everyone can hear everyone else in the sitting area. And he wanted to like somehow do marital counseling there at his club with this rabbi that he wanted to talk to. And she was like, no, absolutely not. I'm not doing it. So he's like, you're going to get dressed. And it was lunch. It was basically just lunch. She's like, you're going to go put on a nice dress and you're going to go to the club with me. And she said, no, I'm not. I'm not doing it. Not going. You can go and have lunch with the rabbi yourself. Bye. And he then choked her so hard that she lost consciousness. Who knew that a better pillowcase is all you need for a better sleep? Let's talk about staying cool throughout the night and waking up with hydrated skin and hair. It's time to upgrade your sleep with Blissey's award-winning
0: 100% Mulberry Silk Pillowcases. Do you struggle to find that cool side of the pillow all the time? Blissey's silk pillowcases are temperature-regulating and have naturally insulating properties, so if you sweat and overheat while you sleep, Blissey is for you. On top of that, it is also so good for hair because it reduces frizz, tangles, and prevents hair breakage. It keeps the moisture in your
1: hair and keeps your skincare products and natural moisture on your skin because silk does not absorb the moisture off of your face. You can say goodbye to wrinkles, dry, flaky, and red skin in the morning and wake up with healthier hair.
0: Blissey pillowcases are made of 100% mulberry silk, which is naturally hypoallergenic, so you can sleep more comfortably without itching or rashes. They're great for those with allergies. And unlike other silk pillowcases, these are of the highest quality silk and are machine washable, durable, and even have a zipper to hold your pillow in place.
1: Okay, so Andy and I have talked about this off the show, but we are getting so many people on our holiday shopping list, Plissy, this year. Yes. And we just had a, a day off. Actually, Andy surprised me with a special spa day after my grandfather passed away and we had a, kind of a rough day. And she was so tired. And she felt so dehydrated, and the facialist told you that your
0: skin was so hydrated, even though I was tired and post flight, and knew that my skin was dehydrated. And I swear it was because of Blissy.
1: It was because when Andy stays in my house, she has not only a Blissy pillowcase. I also put the little spray, spray. and you have your eye mask yep. when you travel. Yep. Yes, yeah, <laughs> we are blissed. We are blissfully blissed out. So yes, please. Give your friends the joy of silky hair and silky skin. Also, maybe they were just like saying it to us, but they also said we looked much younger than our ages.
0: It's probably because of Blissy.
1: It's probably because of (laughs) Blissy.
0: Blissy silk pillowcases are the best silk pillowcases on the market. They have a ton of different prints and colors and make great gifts because there's an option for literally anyone. Men love them too. They have over 1.5 million raving fans and you could be next. Try now risk-free for 60 nights at Blissey.com slash lovemurder to get an additional 30% off.
1: That's B-L-I-S-S-Y dot com slash lovemurder and use code lovemurder to get an additional 30% off. Give yourself and your loved ones the gift of a good night's sleep with Blissy. Okay, Andy, we just did another episode about a killer dentist. At this point, I'm really going to have to ask my dentist dad about why so many of his colleagues are getting all love murdery.
0: Yeah, seriously, call him right now.
1: <laughs> he might not love it. But one thing I do know he loves is today's sponsor, Biome, and their awesome Nobs
0: N-O-B-S, toothpaste tablets. This is
1: a totally new take on
0: toothpaste. Nobs toothpaste was formulated by a dentist to provide a minimalist toothpaste without sacrificing on efficacy. Just 13 ingredients and no BS. Get it? It's that simple.
1: (laughs) On top of that, most fluoride-free toothpaste don't include a remineralizing agent.
0: Knobs is formulated with the
1: safest remineralizing agent alternative to fluoride and super gentle polishing
0: ingredients. Also, they really think differently about every part of the company. For example, there's no plastic tube. Everything comes in glass jars. Plus, because Knobs isn't considered a liquid, no more having your toothpaste chucked out by TSA when you travel. So I'm going to
1: be totally honest with you. I just reordered a whole bunch of them as stocking stuffers. So smart. They're just so cute. I know. They're great. And they actually leave your mouth
0: feeling really refreshed.
1: And they travel so well. Everyone's like coming to us for the holidays. And I thought it would be the perfect stocking stuffer.
0: I think so too. Listeners can enjoy
1: 15% off your first one month supply of NOBS Nobs no BS. Go to betterbiome.com slash lovemurder. That's betterbiome.com slash lovemurder and use code lovemurder. So she had to stay in bed for three days. She could not come out. She had bruises all over her throat. And this is like Rosilla, her housekeeper, is seeing all this. She knows it all. She had to serve her nothing but
0: soup for three days because it was too painful to swallow. It's hard, I think, as another woman, even for her neighbor, for Mary Ellen, like, I think it's easy for the husband. I think my husband would do the same thing. I think your husband would do the same thing. And they'd be like, "Okay, let's like kind of remove ourselves from the situation. But I think as a woman seeing another woman go through it, it's like hard to not want to try to be there, even though you know it's wrong. There's
1: something more nurturing and more like helping in our natures that want to help the kids and the mother. Versus the protective nature. now this is a gross simplification of like heterosexual relationships, but I think a lot of people have at least one or the other in their relationship totally. Yeah. And I think that there's always like one partner that's kind of like more of the protector who's saying, this is a dangerous situation with a dangerous individual. And I understand your instinct to help, but self-preservation is my first instinct.
0: Yeah. And that includes my family. I know. It's just like, who else is going to help them if you don't?
1: Exactly. So... Rosilla is African-American. She'd been with the family for a long time. And there's like a whole part in the book too about how even though we're talking about the 80s, this is still like kind of like back towards like the help, you know, that, that book that was like, yeah, exactly. But Linda had always treated, they called her Ja, I think. It was like, like Ja-Ja almost, but Rosilla, like family. And so had the kids because she was, she was doing everything for them. Well, Robert had never treated her well and refused to, like, pay her Social Security and all of this myriad of issues, of course. So Rosilla was like, he's going to kill you. He's going to kill you. You got to get out of this relationship. Like, she didn't even care if this long-term employment came to an end because Linda couldn't pay her after
0: she divorced. What is that worth if they're dead?
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. She was like... You have got to go. And Linda was very bewildered about the whole thing, but she said it became crystal clear when a couple nights after this, she was trying to go to the guest room to sleep. And he came and he demanded that she get back into his bed. And she was scared about sexual violence. And he just started basically demeaning everything about her, like saying, Are you kidding me? I would never sleep with you. This is not about sex. I don't have sex with you. You're old, you're ugly. You're fat, you're gross. I don't want anything to do with you. I'm just saying that if you're my wife, you're going to sleep in my bed. And then while she's trying to sleep, he's going on to say that she's just like some stupid okey and all this horrible stuff about her parents. And when it really like clicked that this was untenable was when he started criticizing her as a mom.
0: Yeah. Like say whatever you want about my physical appearance, but then when you're going to put down like the one thing that I have pride and joy in and love doing every day. Yes.
1: And that was it. And it was like, even about how she was imparting her like simplistic views on them, like their stupid Disney thing. Like they think, ooh, going to Disney every year is so great it's like because you're a stupid idiot who doesn't know any better and stuff. And this is like, every kid loves Disney World. And she as an adult still had this like fantasy of a place that's beautiful and happy and, uh, you know, has happy endings. And that's okay. You're allowed to feel that way. That's why there's so many Disney adults. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and she was just like, okay, this is over. So A little while after that, she managed to sum up the courage because she also had to ask him for everything. So she had to ask him to ask his secretary to schedule plane tickets so that she and the kids could go to Oklahoma and visit her parents. Okay. And every time she asked us, there was always a big fight. And he, you know, if she wanted to go for two weeks, he made it only one week. And when she was there, he would call 12 times a day. Jesus. This time, though, maybe because of everything that had been happening, he said, okay, So she's like, this is weird. He's letting me go. And when she got there, when she felt like her children were safe and she was in her parents' home, that was when she called him and told him she wanted a divorce. Okay. Which I think was very smart and wise to be physically so far away from him when she delivered this news. Yeah. Robert seemed genuinely shocked. He was acted completely shocked that she wanted a divorce. Apparently, he had never thought a million years that she would actually leave him. He cried, he begged, but Linda would not be swayed. So Robert, that very night, ended up calling a mutual friend of theirs. It was this woman, Janet, who's kind of a powerhouse herself in real estate. She had gone through an early divorce with a powerful man, but had really pulled herself up by her britches and first wives clubbed it and become this very prominent figure in the Dallas real estate scene. So obviously, He had a lot of respect for her and also knew that as far as women went in the scene, she was the top. So he kind of wanted to get his version of the story in first about the divorce. Oh, my God. So he was saying, you know, she's ruining 16 years of marriage. She's throwing it away for nothing. I don't even know what she's thinking. How could she do this? What kind of woman throws away a man just because he's not making as much money? Because he was trying to spin the story that it was because she was greedy. She was greedy, and he wasn't making as much money as he used to. And this woman, Janet, just stopped him and said, quote, Robert, what the matter with Linda is that you have been beating her black and blue? That's the matter with Linda. And he had asked her not to speak to her. So he said, she said, I can't promise you that I won't talk to her. I will talk to her because she is my friend and you are not.
0: Bam. I bet he was so mad.
1: He was so mad, but also think about how much more satisfying it was to hang up on somebody with the old school phones. I know. It was so much more satisfying, and it would go bling. It would go bling. Yeah. The kind that you could really slam down. Now we're like, ah, touchscreen. Yeah. (laughs) Red button. Mm. Red button. I just red buttoned you. Echo loves pushing that red button on people. She's smart, though. She's like, mommy, attention to me. Red button them. Bye. My person, hello, mommy. So Linda, again, wisely refused to come back to Texas with the children until Robert moved out. Now, Linda said that she did not necessarily want the big house. She didn't want a ton of money. She just wanted custody of her kids. Yeah, and some were safe to have them. And some were safe. And of course, this was where the kids had been living for the last three years or so. And he, he could move back into their old house because they had tried to sell their old house and it hadn't sold yet or maybe had sold but then fallen through. I'm not sure why, but it was available. So she's like, you go back to the old house and I'll come back with the kids and we'll figure this out as amicably as possible, which of course, this is not going to go amicably. It was a very bad legal battle to begin with. First of all, I do not know how she found her first attorney, but he was not helpful. According to author Jim Schutz, this first attorney she had was terrified of Robert. Terrified of Robert's powerhouse, a divorce attorney. Sounds like he was a little misogynistic and was basically rolling over for everything that they wanted to the point where when Linda was trying to get him to push back on some things, he was like, well, no one's going to believe you that he abused you because you didn't go to the police. So no one's going to believe that. A prominent real estate developer over a failed actress. He said that her experience on the stage made her seem shallow and melodramatic and that her religious background would make her look like a crazy fundamentalist. Wow. This is her attorney who's supposed to be helping her. And now she's being beat up by him, essentially, verbally, and she has no one by her side. And he said it was just gonna look like what Robert was painting it as—that she was a spoiled, rich University Park wife who was mad that her husband wasn't making him money anymore, and she thought she could do better, and so she was divorcing him for no reason. And he's like, "Well, if you, let's just do what I say, and we'll just get this done with." And he had her sign a very early summary judgment based on on his advice that said she said essentially that he said that if she didn't sign this, that she would lose her kids. Like if that's all she wanted the custody of kids, this is how she would not lose the kids. And her friend Janet looked it over and was like, no, this gives him all the power. He has all the leverage over you. Do not sign this and get a new attorney. And so that was how she ended up being introduced to this new attorney who was amazing named Vanden Ekel. And he went by Ike. Vanden Ekel. Vanden Ekel is amazing. So, he is this awesome, awesome divorce attorney who fights like heck for his clients. And right away, she showed him the summary judgment and he went down to the courthouse and he found out that Robert's attorney had never filed it from their side, which was crazy because this was a good deal for them. Yeah. But she said, you know, knowing my husband, he probably was like, oh, this is just a first offer. We can do better even because he always wants more, 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 better, better. And because he was a new attorney coming in, he was able to say this summary judgment was never filed by the other side. And we would like to essentially retract her submission and signature because situations have changed and she now has new representation. And he won. Good. There was another situation, which I think the judge had been trying to be helpful towards the children in this regard. He had determined that the children should stay in the house and that basically Linda and Robert should move back in and out of the house. Okay. So that the kids never have to move. So they have the most stable atmosphere as possible. And they have time in the house with both parents when they have their custody arrangement. But this was like, Total hell for Linda, because by now, Robert was already dating. He was dating several people, and then he must have settled down with one serious girlfriend. And when it was his turn, he was coming in, bringing his girlfriend in or girlfriends in, sleeping with them in the house. Oh, my God. He was going through her things. He was giving her clothes and Purses and items to his girlfriend. Wow. The kids were really stressed out about it because, especially the oldest son, it's kind of like what we saw in the last episode where the eldest son particularly feels very both dependent upon but protective of the mother. Yeah. And so seeing her pack her bag every week and leave was almost more traumatic than if he got to pack a little bag and just go somewhere else. Yeah. So this was just a bad situation altogether. And the judge had ordered that he and his girlfriends, Robert and his girlfriends, could not go into her room anymore. I mean, this is a 7,000 square foot plus home with three stories. There was plenty of room for everybody here. Totally. And so he's like, put a lock on the door. You're not allowed to go into what was essentially the master suite, or what I've learned from selling Sunset is now called the primary suite. The primary. But Robert had built the house, he had blueprints. And she said that she found evidence that he was going up into the attic. And coming down through the ceiling through a tile in the ceiling that he removed and he would go into her closet and steal stuff and move stuff around. There was also some speculation that I think maybe was warranted that he was also bugging the house. Oh, my God. So she's saying, I don't want him involved in my house at all because he's taking things. He's violating the order to not be in my bedroom. Which she's going, are you kidding me? What does she think? I'm Spider-Man? Ha ha ha. But she's like, no, you're making me crazy because you are doing this. Yeah. And so when Ike came in, he also got the kibosh on that. He was able to say, the kids are going to stay with her and then they're going to go to the other house. There was plenty of room for the children at the other house. And Robert, you stay there. So he's like now stacking up some wins. Good. Linda, for the first time, has somebody legally in her corner She's really excited about this, but when two people are in a battle like this and they have small children, there's really no such thing as winning. Your children are experiencing every part of this along with you, all of the bad-mouthing and the contention and the moving around and everything. So winning did not really feel like winning when the kids were both in a very psychologically bad place. Steven, it was manifesting physically is kind of like Betty Broderick's sons, too. He was just constantly ill. He had a severe case of pneumonia, or he had respiratory illnesses that were just plaguing him all the time. He was having tremendous amounts of anxiety around separating from his mother. And then Kathleen was... She put on a good show. I mean, she was like a little actress, like her mom. And people said that she was even kind of absurdly more adult than she should have been for five or six years old. Like she was the one who took care of Steven when he was sucking his thumb and in the fetal position. Yeah. Because he was so wrecked or his dad had done something horrible to him. And Kathleen was there who's like, okay, let's just get your pajamas on and we're going to go to bed, even though she was the younger one. However, when she went to bed at night, it came out in night terrors and like these horrible sobbing attacks so it was like all of that pain and damage and just everything had to come out somewhere and it came out when she was sleeping yeah so after Linda recorded one of those nights of these horrible crying screaming night terror events the child psychologist that was court appointed said you have to get this done you have to get this absolutely finished because these children are getting extremely psychologically damaged in this. And if you have any hope of repairing it, then this needs to be done. He told this to the attorneys. He's like, both of you get in here. And he's like, I suggest you settled it. So they essentially decided to bifurcate it. They were going to be officially divorced in that legal capacity, but they were still hammering out the details of especially the custody issues. Yeah. Because from everything I read, it did not seem like Linda was even trying to get that much money. This was not a situation like we talked about with Betty Broderick where there was like a certain amount that she felt like she needed in order to be able to go forward. Yeah. This was more that she wanted very primary custody with Safety. limited yeah, visitation from her husband. So they're making some progress in this divorce. It really seemed like With Ike on her side, some of the contentious part of the divorce was getting settled and she felt like she wasn't so unevenly matched. But at the same time, Robert was still trying to control all of the situations, including going on their yearly Disney World trip with her parents. Okay. He said, no, you're not going. You're not taking my children out of state. Tough luck. You can't do it. And Ike fought for her. And she was even going to concede it, like, hey, in the the grand scheme of things, if we don't do Disney World one year, it's not going to be the biggest situation, like, if this is going to gum up the works. And he's like, no, you're going to Disney World. And he made it happen.
0: The only people that that's negatively affecting are the kids. Yes, not being
1: able to do a beloved annual tradition. So at this point, Robert was not happy because he had gone from a very... Privileged position of getting everything to all of a sudden, she has this street fighter for an attorney who's getting her win after win, even if it's just small wins. Yeah. And it seems like psychologically, at this point, for Robert, it wasn't about money. It wasn't really about the kids. Linda could not imagine that it was about the kids because he wasn't spending any time with them. He never had. And even when they would be with him, they were with his girlfriend a lot of the time. It was like he got a new woman to take care of them, essentially. And he had a lot of staff as well. It just seemed like he just did not want Linda to win. And if the only thing she wants is control and custody of her own children, then that was what he wanted to take away from her. Yeah. Towards the end of July, Linda planned an RV trip with her parents. They were supposed to go to Colorado to see her sister together, all traveling together in the RV. And it was decided that they would go essentially for their normal visitation period with Robert and his girlfriend at 4 p.m. on Friday, July 17th. And they would stay at their father's house until Wednesday morning. And then they were planning on her parents coming on Tuesday night. And then essentially, as soon as the kids got dropped off, they could get bundled up in the RV and hit the road together. Okay. So that was the plans. And in between this... Linda, of course, was just living for those 7 p.m. calls every single night that her children were not directly in her presence until the night of July 20th when she did not answer the phone and she was nowhere to be found. This was a Monday night. The kids had been in their father's custody since Friday. At that point, they were supposed to come back that Wednesday. So we have reached the panicked state that I left you at in the very beginning. Linda had spoken to her children on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, but had not answered the phone on Monday, and Linda was nowhere to be seen. She did not have her car, so it seemed like she and her car had disappeared, essentially. She had not left a a note. She had not left word with anyone, which was obviously very unlike Linda, especially knowing the precarious state of her children's mental health at this point. It seemed clear to everyone who loved Linda that something or someone had prevented her from being home to take that call. And there was only one man that they could imagine had reason to want to harm Linda, her estranged husband, Robert. Yeah. So Rosilla knew that after she had left on Monday, because she went to work very early in the morning, she was usually there by 6.45, and then she would leave generally before 4.00 that Linda had planned to go meet Ike at his office, I think around 4, 4.30. And she tried to call Ike at that point during that same night saying, I saw her at this time, maybe we can get a hold of him. But they only had his office number and it was after hours at that point. So they got the answering service. So they're saying, please call his home, tell him we really need to talk to him. But I don't know if he was on vacation or something because he didn't get back to them until the very next day. And the two women, Mary Ellen and Rosilla, ended up staying up basically all night worrying about this. But they both agreed that they weren't going to go to the police until they came back to the house the next morning and figured out whether she was there or not. When they went to the house the next morning, she wasn't there. And her bed was mussed up as if she had slept in it. But Rosilla said that it was very unlike her. It didn't really look like it had been slept in. And usually Linda made her own bed. She was one of those people that just gets up and does it first thing in the morning as part of her boarding routine. So it was disconcerting how the sheets were kind of messed up and how she wasn't there. So they did end up getting through to Ike on Tuesday, July 21st in that morning. And he said that she had come in for her meeting. They had some smaller legal matters to discuss. It wasn't a very long meeting. And she had left. She seemed fine when she left his office. Obviously, he didn't know where she'd gone after that. So Mary Ellen and Rosilla went to the police. And now they went to the University Park Police. And the University Park Police were not taking this seriously at all. They were like, okay, so why are you so upset? And they were like, well, she didn't answer the phone when her child called last night. And it doesn't seem like she was actually home last night. And he's like, well, she's a grown adult. Some women who are going through a divorce and are essentially, I think that it was already bifurcated, so I think that she was technically single, would say, I don't have my kids tonight. I'm going to go out on the town. Maybe she met somebody. Maybe she's dating and she didn't want to tell you guys. But a woman is not missing just because she missed a call from her child. They obviously don't get it. They don't get it. This guy was not getting it, whoever took the initial report. And he didn't even take the report because he said, we don't even take Official missing persons reports, you guys have to go to Dallas, go to Dallas PD and do it there. So, of course, they did, but they were already facing some pushback on this, even though they're gravely concerned. And now they're involving Janet and they're calling her parents, although her parents were already on their way from Oklahoma. So, they weren't answering their phone, obviously. They're calling Miriam, the sister. So, they're now like getting the network all spun up and everybody knew that he was abusive. So they know it's a limited time frame. They're calling Ike. Ike goes over to the house and it is like control central now. They've got people on the phone with the Dallas PD. Janet and Mary Ellen are like mapping out routes she might have driven and like driving around town to look for her. They're talking to everyone they possibly can. And they essentially wanted to go over and storm Robert's house to see if he was keeping her somewhere. And Ike put his foot down. And he was like, absolutely no way. He's like, look, if Robert figures out that something's going on, he can just take the kids and go wherever. He could say their mom's a bad mom. Their mom's missing. She obviously is not going to be taking custody on Wednesday. So I'm going to take the kids and do whatever I want with them. And if he has done something to her, I don't think he's dumb enough to be keeping her in the house with his, the, her own children or do it himself. And this could also be he'd be tipped off then that people are already sounding the alarm. So he's like, I think that the best bet for you guys would be to talk to police, obviously, but keep it under your hat and make sure that he thinks everything's fine on Wednesday when he drops the kids off as usual, because then they'll be in the custody of the grandparents. Yep. Okay. He's getting a little pushback for that because they're like, we need to go in guns blazing, essentially. And he's like, no, you can't. Tactically, let the enemy know what we know. Yeah. And he had some contacts at the FBI. He's like, let me bring in my contacts at the FBI and they can quietly look into this for us. And they agreed with him that it was a bad idea to tip the number one suspect off at this point. So the FBI told Linda's loved ones that they needed to try to remain calm because if word about the investigation got out to Robert and Linda was still alive, maybe, that her life could be in additional danger, is what they essentially said to them.
0: Yeah. Okay.
1: So the women, which is like a large part of Janet, Mary Ellen, of course, and some of their other relatives who had come, were very confused to how this whole thing was being handled. Because I think it was Janet who said, she's a pretty prominent social person in Dallas. They're not the most famous or most wealthy people, but they're well known enough. And when someone goes missing and there's a chance that they're alive out there, you usually plaster them all over the news. Uh huh. So what is going on? What is happening at this point? Why are you keeping us all in the dark about everything? So she's getting upset. I guess that the parents showed up and They were handling the news like well and being like, I think we should just go along with the FBI investigation. And so now some of the friends at this point are like fighting with the parents, like fight for your daughter, like figure out where she is. Like, why is everyone just like doing what the authorities say? We have to do more. Okay, everyone's kind of going crazy at this point, essentially. They're just all really worried and everyone wants to have a better plan. Andy, do you know? what the best thing is about marrying the right person.
0: You could go in so many different directions with this.
1: Well, obviously not being love murdered, but otherwise I am referring to the endless
0: conversations. Oh yes, the endless (laughs) conversations.
1: (laughs) That's why we're so excited to share today's sponsor, Paired. It's a relationship app for couples.
0: The way it works is you and your partner download the app paired together and every day paired gives you questions quizzes and games to have fun stay connected and deepen your conversations
1: because you guys know i'm all about the backstory the questions around core memories from the early days of our relationships have been some of me and nathaniel's favorites that sounds on brand
0: they also have really fun quizzes and games each day you get a quiz to play or a question to answer and you cannot see your partner's answer until you answer yourself. Some of the most popular couple games are Would You Rather and Love Languages. It's simple and often hilarious. Some of the most popular quizzes are saying sorry and
1: how's your sex life?
0: Wow, Certainly a good pair if you ask me. Whether you're just a few dates in or have been together for a long time, it's time to lighten the mood and have fun with your partner by using Paired. Head to paired.com lovemurder to get a seven-day free trial and 25% off if you sign up for a subscription. Just
1: head over to PAIRED.com slash lovemurder to sign up today. Connect with your partner every day using PAIRED. A happier relationship starts here. Are you having trouble sleeping or staying asleep? Is poor sleep negatively impacting your life? Have you tried other sleep supplements with zero success?
0: Sleep is the foundation of our mental and physical health. When you're sleeping well, you can perform at your best mentally and physically.
1: Introducing Beam's Dream Powder, a science-backed, healthy hot cocoa for sleep. If you know me, which I feel like you guys know me pretty well at this point, you know that dream has been a game changer for my sleep. And it is so important as well as being a lifelong struggle for me. Right as I need to be winding down, my brain is gearing up. I have less anxiety than Andy, probably, but mine all decides to show up exactly when I'm going to bed, and it has been that way ever since I was a little girl. Beam's dream powder has become an essential part of a new, better nighttime routine for me.
0: Absolutely. Even for someone who hasn't necessarily had the same issues with sleep as you, I found Beam's Dream Powder to be an awesome complement to a healthy nighttime routine. It helps me transition out of anxious work-life mode into rest mode. Yeah, Andy, you're anxiety during the day and I'm anxiety at night. I'm anxiety every moment from when I wake up to go to sleep.
1: (laughs) Plus, with delicious flavors like chocolate peanut butter, cinnamon cocoa, and sea salt caramel, and with only 15 calories, and somehow, guys, it tastes so good, zero grams of sugar, Better Sleep has never tasted better.
0: Other sleep aids can cause next day grogginess, but Dream contains a powerful all-natural blend of reishi, magnesium, L-theanine, melatonin, and nano-CBD to help you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up. Refreshed,
1: definitely important when you're Andy, and she cannot take like even a full over-the-counter sleep aid, <laughs> or she is not functioning the next day. Also, the numbers do not lie. In a clinical study, ninety-three percent of participants reported Dream helping them get better sleep. Beam Dream is easy to add into your nighttime routine. Just mix Dream into a hot water or milk or a plant milk, froth and enjoy before bed.
0: Find out why Forbes and New York Times are all talking about Beam and why it's trusted by the world's top athletes and business professionals.
1: If you want to try Beam's best-selling dream powder, get up to 40% off for a limited time when you go to shopbeam.com lovemurder and use code lovemurder at checkout. That's shopb e a m dot com lovemurder and use code lovemurder for up to 40% off. Everyone wants to find her. So Wednesday morning came, and thankfully, Robert did deliver the children into the custody of Rosilla and Linda's parents. Like, he kind of hovered and said, is everything all right in there? Oh, Everything God, okay? Seriously? And Rosilla was nervous as hell. And she's like, of course, totally normal. Everything's normal. Like, get inside, you know, kids. You'll see your mom. And they ran inside. And of course, their mom wasn't there. So as soon as they shut the door, the kids were running around the house looking for their mom. And when Rosilla said, oh, we just wanted you guys to come in. It's she's not actually here. They went completely hysterical.
0: Are the grandparents there? So
1: grandparents were there with them. Thank goodness. But at this point, both of the children who were, I believe, eight and five at this point, believed that their father had done something to their mother. They were like, she would be here for us. Unless someone hurt her and they had witnessed so much conflict between their parents that that was the only person they could think of as well. It's the only logical answer. Yeah. I guess that eight-year-old Steven told some of the people who were at the scene at this point that he knew his father had done something to his mother and he knew the adults were lying to him when they said that his mother was all right. (sighs) So that very same day that they get dropped off, they had a regular weekly session with their court-appointed child psychiatrist. And after some back and forth with the grandparents and Ike and Razilla, they decided the kids should see their psychiatrist because they were obviously in crisis. But the psychiatrist spoke first to Razilla and then to Ike, and he needed to know the Real situation, what was truly going on, what they thought. And that was when Ike revealed that it was still developing, but there had been some news and it wasn't good. Linda's car had been found just across the Oklahoma border and there was a considerable amount of blood in it, as in an unsurvivable amount of lost blood. Yeah. That they were now trying to determine if it was indeed Linda's blood and where she had gone from there or where somebody had taken her from there or her body. So the psychiatrist finds this out. At the same time, the rest of Linda's loved ones are finding this out. Everybody is losing their minds, thinking that obviously Robert had paid somebody or managed to make this happen. And the psychiatrist doesn't want to lie to the children. But the FBI agent who was there said, it's pretty heavy. We don't know. We haven't recovered a body. I don't necessarily want you to tell the children at this point that their mother is definitely dead. So they're walking this line of not lying to the kids, but preparing them for what may be the worst inevitable truth. Yeah, the worst case scenario. Finally, when this was discovered and when the kids are already safely in the custody of the grandparents in Rosilla, that was when Robert was hauled down to the police station. And he did have a rock-solid alibi for the day and night and the following day of Linda's disappearance. So they've got some big questions that are still lingering here, obviously. How did Robert do it? What are they going to tell the kids? I mean... Why were they still feeling like they weren't getting all of the information? Why can't they tell them more? Had they actually found Linda and they're not telling them that? Meanwhile, Janet was facing resistance in publicizing the case. So she was trying to use her contacts at TV stations to start getting the word out. Now that they know the blood was found in her car, could she be injured somewhere? Should people be on the lookout for her? And so she is pressuring. The FBI and Ike, who is speaking to the FBI, to release the information so that they can put this out everywhere, blast it all over Texas and Oklahoma, for that matter. And she started to think that the FBI was lying to her. And the FBI was lying. While it was absolutely true that Robert wanted his wife dead, Linda's car had not been found covered in blood in Oklahoma. What? Linda's car was at a remote location in East Texas, as was Linda, who was still totally alive. What? <laughs> she gone girl? Linda's disappearance and presumed murder was a ruse concocted by the FBI. So she FBI gone girl? Oh my God. They had done it to entrap the man who had ordered a
0: hit on her, a legitimate hit. He actually did order a hit. She... He did. Oh, my God. That's why you tried to cover earlier. You were like, oh, we have all this information because <laughs> from the, from the, court, <laughs> the divorce. divorce hearings. It's yeah. not because she's still alive. It's not because <laughs> she helped
1: author Jim Schutz write the book. My husband's trying to kill me. <laughs> guys. That's the name of the book. The name of the book is, in quotation marks, (laughs) with an exclamation point, my husband's trying to kill me. And then it has a beautiful glamour shot of Linda on the back. So that is the book. I didn't want to give too much away at the beginning. I also used some articles from D Magazine, which I will share with you in the show notes. I would also like to give Carolyn, our friend and patron, a shout out because she read this recently and sent it to me. And I actually already had it. I was like, oh my gosh, this book has been on my shelf forever. And I thought, and so did Carolyn, that it would be a good little winter break to have a survivor story. Yeah. They're always nice.
0: Wow. So great. So she's alive. And we have to go
1: back a little bit in time to see how this all went down from Linda's perspective. So a couple of weeks before Linda's so-called disappearance, she was summoned to Ike's office and he made it sound very dire. He had come back early from his vacation and he said that she needed to get there right away. It was like 830 in the morning. She didn't know what was going on. So she walked in and immediately there was two guys wearing suits who had guns in his office with her. So she's like, what the hell is going on? At that point, Ike introduced her to two FBI agents who informed her that Robert had taken out a professional contract with a hitman to have her killed. Jesus, could you imagine? And that her life was very much in danger. In imminent danger. Imminent danger.
0: Oh, my God.
1: What's more, they said that there had already been an attempt on Linda's life as well as her parents. The hitman they had traced him had followed them to disney world that's sick but clearly had not been able to get a clear shot at freaking disney world yeah what and apparently he had been told that if he needed to take the grandparents out to do so yeah like collateral damage so according to the fbi robert had hired a man named colonel james young as a private investigator during the divorce so it had been Something like almost a year earlier, he had hired this man. Not quite. Maybe a little more than half a year he had hired this man. Robert would later say that he hired Young to keep tabs on Linda. Oh, my God. He wanted to see how she was spending her money and if she had a boyfriend. He suspected her of having a boyfriend. Okay. However, his own divorce attorney would say that he had no knowledge of this so-called private investigator. And Robert, in a previous divorce court proceeding, had said he did not hire a private investigator. So he's clearly keeping this on the down low. Furthermore, when the FBI looked into this, he apparently had told this private investigator, this colonel, that he only wanted oral reports to not keep any notes. So this is really sketchy. Yeah, obviously. And we don't know whether this really did start as a private investigation relationship and morphed into a hitman relationship or if this was the intention all along. The FBI believed at the time that they spoke to Linda that what Robert really wanted, obviously, was not Young keeping tabs on her, but Young murdering her. Colonel Young was, on the surface, a Chinese-American Green Beret and decorated officer who was said to have reached the rank of colonel before his 36th birthday. He had allegedly been a veteran of three wars, which I think was World War II, the Korean War, and Vietnam. Wow. He had also allegedly engaged in covert operations with intelligence forces in foreign countries and had been awarded several medals for all of his service, including two Purple Hearts and a Bronze Star. Well, according to what the FBI told Linda, the colonel had gone rogue after retirement. They believed that he was, to quote Jim Schutz's book, an extremely dangerous, highly skilled, well-established procurer of professional murders. Oh, my God. Young had apparently specialized in subcontracting the actual killing. So he's not actually doing the murdering, even though it would seem that Robert was under the impression that he was. Okay. Young's go-to hitman had recently passed away, forcing Young to find
0: contract killers freelance. Oh, my God. What, like on the <laughs> 80s version of the Darknet? Basically, he was going to
1: different veteran organizations and special ops meetings or people who were retired from special ops and seeing who maybe had lived in a moral gray area as far as killing and needed some money. Who is desperate? Yes. So he used this connection with somebody else to find this man, Fred Zabotowski. Now, Zabotowski had been an honest-to-goodness Vietnam war hero. This is proven. He had to great injury to himself, saved his entire platoon. It's not like that episode a few months ago where the guy lied about all of that when he got bayoneted. Yeah. So he was a real hero. He had been awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor for his service in Vietnam. He had ended up, however, in this shadowy mercenary business in Laos after technically being honorably discharged from the military. But Zabatowski maintains that the special ops he had been in was supported by the CIA and the American government, even though it looked like mercenary shit off the books. Okay. It's always the CIA. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. So Young had approached Zabatowski about, you know, with war stories, talks about special ops and things that they had had to do together in the war, not together, but the same types of missions. And when it seemed like obviously Zabotowski had lived through some shit and he did need some work, as so many of our veterans do, he started floating the idea of murdering an innocent woman for money. Oh, my God. Obviously, this is not Zabotowski's bag, even though he needed money. He was not going to kill an innocent civilian, at least not a lady one who lives in Dallas. So he approached the FBI about the hit. Ooh. And said, This guy is for real. As far as I know, he is the real deal. And he's really seriously looking for someone to murder this woman.
0: Good for him.
1: Yes. And so he had kind of put Young off. He had said, I don't know, man, I'll think about it, but I, I'm not really in the game anymore. Maybe I could introduce you to somebody, but let me think about who I know. And so of course They concocted a plan that he would introduce Young to an undercover FBI agent who he introduced as not a very inventive name, pals. Hitman Jack. Hitman Jack. Hitman Jack. You know,
0: sometimes you don't need to be that creative. Sometimes you can just call it like it is.
1: Not Jeff who just kills
0: people. It's Hitman Jack.
1: FBI agent Jack. But Hitman Jack. (laughs) Could you imagine he said that instead of Hitman Jack? He's like, I'm at, I mean, Hitman Jack. (laughs) It's like a TV show. Yeah, the guy's real name who was acting as Hitman Jack was a guy named either Gary or Jerry. I never know when it's G-E-R-R-Y. I know, it's hard. Sometimes it's Gary, sometimes it's Jerry. Hubel, that's the undercover guy. And he introduced Hitman Jack to Young and Hitman Jack said he would take the gig. And he's gonna do it for the low price of 5,000 when we later find out that Young was going to be given 45,000, which is more like 115,000 in today's money.:
0: Oh my God. Thats a finder's fee is 40K?
1: Like the Hitman Jack got 5,000, and Zabotowski got 2,000 as a finder's fee. OK. So he's getting more like 38, though, for just connecting these murders. So the FBI had recorded conversations between Young and Hitman Jack, obviously, the undercover agent. They had tons of evidence on Young, and they did know that Linda Edelman was the target. So obviously they know that Robert is the person ordering the hit because they also had phone calls between Young and Robert and proof that he had employed him as a private investigator.
0: That's a good one. We haven't gotten that one before.
1: A private investigator (laughs) hitman. But they didn't have anything concrete because the way it stood, Robert could just say, I don't know what he was doing. I just hired him as a private investigator. This is all on him. Because when Young is talking to Hitman Jack, he's saying my client, he's not saying his name. So they essentially wanted to turn up the pressure cooker. They need to get more evidence. And they're hoping that in acting like this hit is really going to go down and then did go down, they can get recordings of the men having conversations. They could get essentially Robert taking out some money, handing it over to Young to pay Hitman Jack that has his fingerprints on it. Something that is showing more direct evidence of his intention to have his wife murdered. So that's why they needed, this is what they're all telling her at this point. So she's sitting in the office that was, she thought, just an emergency meeting with her divorce attorney. And now she's finding out That her husband of 16 years is trying to have her murdered and that the only way that they're going to be able to catch him is if she fakes her own death. Now, there's lots of things going on in her mind, one of which was there was evidence that Young had been supposed to kill her earlier and that he had actually gone to Disney World himself but not done the job for whatever reason. Okay. And... That there was some fear that Robert could have hired somebody else to do the job because Young wasn't getting the job done, or Young could have hired somebody that wasn't an FBI agent to also be on the same job. Yeah. That's kind of messy, though. It's messy, but it's not out of the realm of imagination because they're trying to impress upon her that this is a very sensitive situation and she is absolutely in danger. So she's going to have to do this thing and she can't tell anyone. So they essentially tell her. That the plan is to work with the custody schedule in a way that's a very tight window in order to make Robert believe that she has been murdered, but not have it hit the media in any way that would alert him to the fact that it was done before they were ready to make it look like it was done or make him skeptical that it wasn't real or this was a setup somehow. They had to do this really carefully because. They wanted her to get the kids back. They wanted to make sure that the kids would be back in her custody at the moment they could finally arrest Robert. Of course. And there was an immense amount of danger for their own agent as well, obviously, because if this man that seems extremely dangerous, Colonel Young, finds out that he's undercover FBI, he could very easily get killed. Yes. So they tell her that she cannot tell anyone. They were going to make plans for her to disappear on a Monday night that she was supposed to go to her attorney's office. And then they basically like smuggled her out, essentially like a delivery entrance. Okay. With somebody else, I think, driving her car and took her to a remote location on this lake in East Texas where she didn't even really know where she was. And she was going to have to stay there until they told her that she could come back and She was essentially alone. They were not leaving bodies to really protect her while she was there, which seems crazy to me. And the system was that she was supposed to answer the phone if it rang three times and hung up and then she could answer the next one. But if they rang any other amount of times not to answer the phone, I mean, it was like crazy. And she is aware that this is very important and her life is on the line and the FBI agent's life is on the line. However, she's thinking, my kids are going to think I'm dead. Yeah, and her whole family. And my entire family is going to think I'm dead. She really did not want to have to go to these lengths. And they finally said, okay, you can tell your parents. Because your parents can be in the know and they can work with Ike and they can work with the FBI. And they can protect your kids as, as much as possible and be there. But also be our people kind of on the inside that know that this is a sting operation which is the whole reason why they were like, just go along with what the FBI says. Everybody calm down. And they were frustrating the rest of the loved ones and volunteers who were frantically looking for her. Yeah. There's a lot about this in the book, about the torture of knowing that your children are going to be devastated and unknown and how Steven was going to feel when he called her and she wasn't there. And they also did not listen to her when she said, "Look, everybody who's close to me knows how horrible this divorce has been and how violent my husband is. The moment I don't take that phone call at 7 p.m., they're going to be looking for me." And they did not think that that was going to happen. They thought that because Robert's the one controlling the child, that Robert would just be like, "Hey, you get to try again tomorrow. Just go to bed," essentially. And that Razilla would get to the house the next morning see that the bed was messed up. And be like, oh, she must have gone out for the day. And that the first raising of the alarm would happen at 4 p.m. when her parents arrived in the RV. And Rizilla would be like, she hasn't been around all day. I don't know what happened. So they thought they were going to have like almost a full 24 hours yep. before anyone was really concerned about her. Which would give them time to have Hitman Jack hit up Colonel Young to say, I did the job, now give me my money. Yep. So they were going to be further along before there was this push to, like, get it in the media and do all these things and, and have Robert find out about it. Because now there's people, like, going around and talking. And I guess also the 4 p.m. thing was because there was a um, cop at, I think, the University Park Police Department that was in on the scam. And they had gone there too early in the morning and it wasn't somebody who was in on the sting. So he wasn't telling them the right thing the other police officer knew about the FBI operation and would have said absolutely yes and like basically taken a false report to make them feel like they were getting a report in. So they were getting more frenetic because no one's caring and spinning out and doing more and saying more and getting it everywhere. And that was the opposite of what the FBI wanted.
0: Yeah. But also just don't discount how much people care about other people. (laughs) You can't calculate what the collateral damage is going to be from that.
1: Yes, from this type of lie and situation. So what they were doing to try to get Robert was the first thing that they did was the the very first day when she left her attorney's office to go home, and which was horrible because she's saying goodbye to her kids and knowing that they're gonna think she's dead. And she said also that the way Robert looked at her when she said goodbye was like he had almost this like sadness, this like bittersweet sadness in his eyes when he said goodbye to her and was like kind of nice for the first time ever. Like, this is the last time I'm going to see you. So they took some like really grainy, sketchy surveillance footage of her purposely. And they had Hitman Jack go to Young and say, I want to meet your client if I'm doing the hit. And Young said, absolutely no way. You're not meeting my client, of course. And he goes, fine. Well, I don't do messy. I don't do screwed up operations. I want to know this is her because I think this is Linda Edelman, but I don't know. So what they wanted was they wanted to follow Young, record him with Edelman, Robert Edelman, and have Robert essentially say, yes, that's my wife. That's the one I want dead. Okay. So they did follow Robert and Young to a Chinese restaurant. And a bunch of undercover FBI agents went in around the time they went in and parked as close to possible as the table. However, I don't know if it was like not recorded or if the recording was just really poor quality. It sounds like they could see and hear the men talking. And at one point, Young said something like, he just wants proof that this is exactly the target or the woman or something. But it was like in and out. And you heard Robert saying, or they heard Robert saying, you got it. And then there was like little snatches of conversation about wiping something down about prints. He also gave him $2,000 at that meeting. Robert gave Young, but they didn't get exactly what they needed. And then afterwards, they were hoping that they would be able to get the picture back and it would have Robert's prints on it because that picture was taken by their very own agent. So it would be evidence that this was he was in play. But they ended up following them. So they drove around in Young's car, who it was not bugged because Young was not aware he was being followed. So they don't know what they said there. And then he got out and then Young drove a couple miles away and they observed him getting out and burning the photograph. <laughs> so they're like, oh, there goes prints or any evidence that was on that photograph. So this is another reason they're like, "Whoa, we're dealing with a professional here because he's really covering his tracks here. So then they went forward. They have Linda hiding out. They had the information about the car being found, hit essentially just like the law enforcement wire. And they were having the FBI inform his divorce attorney that this was going on, but only after she was brought into custody. So he knows, but he had already been notified by Young because they do have a phone record of a phone call directly after Hitman Jack called... Young to say that the job was done. Young immediately called Robert. Now, however, his phone wasn't tapped. So we don't know what was said on that call. Yeah, I know. But what else could it be? Right. Yeah. This is all going down. And then the psychiatrist sees the kids and he said, this is really, really bad. And finally, the FBI agent told the psychiatrist, OK, it's just all a ruse. Like their mom's actually fine. Like this is we don't need to be concerned." And the psychiatrist will, "No, we need to be very concerned. Like the longer this goes, the more psychological damage they're incurring. And you need to find some way to tell these children that their mom is okay and mean it." So the FBI is like dealing with like all of these crazy women, like just going out doing their own like grassroots investigation and getting it on the media. And then they've also got the psychiatrist being like, "If you don't tell these children, who will definitely tell their father that their mother's still alive." They're going to be damaged forever. And Linda, of course, is being like, my babies, my babies. And she's going through her own shit because the hitman, turns out the guy who was playing the hitman, the FBI agent, had a lake house near her safe house. And so he just showed up one day and he showed her his badge. And he was she was like, who are you? And he's like, I'm the hitman. And she thought he meant like he was another hitman pretending to be an FBI agent
0: who was there to kill her. Oh, my God. Does she have a meltdown?
1: She had a total meltdown. And he's like, no, 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 no. I'm
0: like playing the hitman. (laughs) Oh, my God. Bro, read the room.
1: She was like on her last nerve as it stands, because thankfully she did talk to Jerry or Gary over here because uh, he was the one who explained to her why the phones weren't working. They weren't getting any messages through to her because there was two different phone systems. And so Ike is calling her and it's ringing three times and he's hanging up. But because of the switch of the phone systems, it rang four times on her end. Oh, my God. So she's hearing it ring four times and then stop. And she's like, that wasn't three. That was four. I can't answer it. So it's like ringing and ringing and ringing. She's like just crying, not knowing that she's she's like, I can't answer. They told me they're like, did they get it wrong? Like, I mean, she's having psychological damage over here. But luckily, you know, she's keeping her life. So that's good. This is all going on. And finally, the FBI is like, parents, get the kids in the RV and take them to Linda. You can tell them when you're in the RV. Because we need the parents, the grandparents, and the kids, like, out of here now. Because it's just getting too messy everywhere. And the kids are really upset. And Linda's upset. So they're taking, they, like, were reunited at this random house in the middle of nowhere. Which was great. I mean, great for the kids. Great for Linda. That's all smooth sailing. But the FBI was having a very hard time keeping all of the balls in the air, essentially, at this point. Because, yeah, of course, Hitman Jack is now pressuring Young to get him the money. They need the evidence before they can arrest Robert that this money has come from Robert. They need a tangible thing to hold on to here. So Young is trying to get the money from Robert. And finally, and I think it was like the following Monday, he meets up with Hitman Jack, hands him the $5,000 in cash, and he gets arrested. So they got him. They figured That was enough at the same time to get Robert, obviously. So it was a synchronized arrest. So at the exact same time, so that like Young couldn't tip him off or anything, Robert was also arrested in his office. So that was that. Linda could be revealed as being alive, which was a great relief to all of her loved ones and especially her family. What was Robert's reaction to that? He was surprised. They went into his office and the secretary was like, you can't go in there and all of a sudden there was just like five agents in there. He acted quite surprised at that moment. Now, here's the problem. Young had not gotten the money from Robert for that $5,000 because for whatever reason, he could not get through to Robert that weekend, and he was afraid that the hitman was going to retaliate if he didn't give him the money. So Young had gone to the bank and taken out his own $5,000 and given it to him. So there's still... Still not a lot of great evidence on Robert at this point, but enough to go forward and prosecute, obviously. Yeah. Robert also immediately lawyered up and said absolutely nothing versus Young, who they had all the evidence on and had him basically doing everything, said, if you cut me a deal, I will turn on Robert. I will sing like a canary for you. So going into this, into the contract killing trial... The evidence that they had was a series of phone calls and payments that aligned. So essentially, there's this history of phone calls between the two men, even though we don't know exactly what it was for. And they seemed pretty closely aligned with when Robert was withdrawing large amounts of cash. There was also a record that Colonel Young was able to hand over that showed that all of these different payments coincided with the withdrawals. And that they amounted to $45,000, which was the amount that he said he had been paid for the hit. So Robert claimed, he was his defense attorney is claiming at trial, that he had just paid this man for private investigative work, which you'd think $115,000 in today's money is quite a lot for a man that's not actually even giving you any paper reports. Yep. However, his attorney is claiming that those withdrawals, it's just a coincidence and that he had a good reason for all of those big withdrawals. Like he was buying his girlfriend, who is now his fiance, some expensive jewelry in cash because he could get a better deal in cash. And so he's coming up with reasons and he's saying, I really only paid him like $5,000. He also is sticking to his story that he only paid him for private investigation services. He doesn't know what he was doing. Young can testify, can't he? Yes, Young can testify. So yeah, he's saying essentially that he tried to fire Young because he wasn't doing very good work digging up dirt on Linda. So when he went to fire him, apparently Young had just gone crazy and decided to murder Linda on his own and then blackmail Robert because he thought he had a big wealthy fish on the hook. And if he was going to get fired and not get to do the work for him and get paid anymore, then he was going to get paid another way by killing Linda. (laughs) So this is all on him, he says. But like you said, Andy, they still had the colonel to testify. But as it turned out, the colonel wasn't a colonel at all. So for some reason, this doesn't come up at all in my husband's trying to kill me. I guess maybe they didn't figure it was pertinent to Linda's story, which is what they're primarily following here. But I, I found a D Magazine article from 1988 by Sally Giddis that revealed that Colonel Young had never been a colonel at all and was rather a pathological liar who had been honorably discharged from the Army as a private in 1946. Wow. For the next 20 years, he ran a liquor, wine, and deli store. He sold auto parts at one point. He ran a gas station. He even worked as a chef. And at some point in 1965, he began impersonating a colonel and sharing these war stories for people just for funsies. Unreal. Unreal. I guess he became part of several veteran organizations and he really kept up the charade and he must have been a good actor because it seems like even the FBI believed that he was this dangerous individual. In 1983, he began to work as a private investigator, and it was true that Robert had hired him in that capacity. However, Young claimed that after only a month or two of working together, Robert demanded that he come over to his house. This was in January of the same year that he would try to have her killed that July. He basically strip-searched Young to make sure he wasn't wearing a wire, And then he made him walk around his property to chat and at that point suggested that because Young was portraying himself as this mercenary war hero killer that he's already killed before. It's not really such a stretch to kill again. And if he gave him $45,000, would he get rid of his problem? Young said he would. There was different instructions, like the Disney World one. He also gave him blueprints or had him look at blueprints of the house and mapped it out. I don't know if he let him keep them because I don't think Young still had them or Young might have just burned them like he burned the picture. They talked about getting in through the garage because that was where there wasn't an alarm. But everywhere else, the alarm would go off. And there was many different ways they talked about Young killing Linda. However, it doesn't seem as though Young really had ever contracted a killing or killed anyone, despite the book I read being like always this mastermind connection of contracted killers. I think that's what he told the witness. He told the FBI guy, the undercover guy. Okay. So he didn't really want to kill Linda, but he wanted to take Robert's money. Yes.
0: Yeah. And he's a pathological liar.
1: So he was just taking the money and being like, yeah, I'm I'm figuring out the best time to do it. And this went on for months until Robert was essentially like now or never. And at that point, Young was like, oh, my gosh, I got to get a killer. So he approached Zabatowski, who he knew was a former mercenary on June 25th of that year, who, of course, immediately went to the authorities and reemerged with his contact, Hitman Jack. So now the prosecution has a problem because he's a liar. We've got two liars. So it's like you have to believe one liar over the other liar, essentially. You either believe that Colonel Young is not a great guy, but he's telling the truth about this matter because he has absolutely no motive for wanting Linda Edelman dead. Yep. Or you believe Robert Edelman's story, which is that this guy had gone totally rogue and he was a liar and a con man and he was planning on doing it and then blackmailing Robert. The defense's case was pretty good. They brought up that, you know, he paid with his own money, that there's no record of Robert ever saying the words. There's no fingerprints that show that that money came from Robert, that all the payments that went to Colonel Young could be chalked up to being a P.I., And moreover, they could prove that many of them were just random, just coincidences of large amounts of cash he took out on that day. So the defense really believed they were winning. And a lot of people in the courtroom did. I mean, even the reporter who was writing the story said that it seemed like a done deal that Robert was going to be acquitted. But the jury felt otherwise, because the jury verdict on the federal case of hiring a contract killer was guilty when it came to Robert Edelman. So the jury later said that they did not believe that Young was smart enough or wily enough to concoct this whole scheme. It just seemed like such a reach. And they also said that Robert was caught in a lie in a cross-examination, and he had such a bad attitude that he seemed arrogant, like he was put out with the prosecutor. He seemed just like kind of a big asshole. And he seemed like the type of guy that would do this to his wife. And so, again, it's kind of like that asshole tax. Like, he just couldn't even keep it together. Yeah. On the stand, and the jury just walked away, having to make a judgment call, it sounds like, on who they believed in the circumstance. And they were like, I'll go with the guy that's been lying about his service for... really long time and actually set up the murder.
0: We're going to go with him. We'll trust him over him. Trust him over the asshole over here.
1: Yeah, it's pretty crazy. It's the 1988D article was before this next part I'm going to tell you. And it seems like there was a lot of people that still thought he was innocent. They did still think he was maybe railroaded. I mean, this article like lays out all of the evidence why It wasn't Robert and was actually this so-called Colonel Young who was setting it up. But there was just like a couple things that rang true for me, which was there was one part where he told Hitman Jack that he needed the specific jewelry from Linda to prove that she was truly dead. There was a ring and then there was a locket that had her children's picture in it that she always wore. And it seemed so specific and not like something that would come up in a normal meeting with a private investigator that, to me, I didn't know how Colonel Young would have known that if it wasn't from Robert or, like, about where their security systems were or that he knew he could get through the garage. To me, I would think it was Robert for sure. There's not really a question in my mind if he was unfairly prosecuted in this case and convicted. But it's kind of a moot point anyway, because Robert would later plead guilty and admit to ordering the hit on his wife. Wow. And this was because Robert was sentenced to 10 years in federal prison for the federal crime, but he had to face state charges for the same crime. And I guess federal prisons are really nice, but Texas state prisons are really bad. And he was up for 5 to 99 years in a state prison as well for this crime. Whoa. He ended up Firing his defense attorney, which is really funny because I think he did a great job, even though they didn't win. And the defense attorney later sued him because wow. he didn't pay him. He got a new defense attorney, and that defense attorney went to Linda and the authorities with a deal, essentially saying, if he de-parents, meaning he can never be around the kids, he can never contact them, he has no parental rights them at all, and will never be around them, and you get sole custody for the rest of your life, will you be okay with him taking a shorter sentence? And she said yes, because that's all she'd ever wanted. So he ended up getting sentenced to 10 years in the state prison as well, I think. That was the plea But it ended up being run concurrently with his federal charges, and he could do it in the federal prison, as far as I understand. And then he ended up only serving five years altogether. Okay. But as far as I know, he has never harassed Linda or her children ever again. This book that I was using was published in 92 or 93, I believe. And Linda had sold the giant house, used the money for a much smaller rental house. She had gone back to work at a Baptist church, and she taught voice lessons. The kids were thriving. They were doing great. They were, at that point, teenagers and young adults. And since then, it seems like Linda and her children have become more private. It looks like she has moved to Colorado, which I know is where her sister was living. So I don't know if her whole family's out there now, but hopefully they're all doing well. And I think that they would like to enjoy their privacy. I was shocked that she was not on Who the Bleep Did I Marry? I really wanted to see Linda on Who the Bleep Did I Marry? But it seems like in her later years, she has been very private about the situation. I cannot say that Robert has stayed out of trouble himself. He did get out of prison after five years. He did marry his fiancée, who apparently stood by her man, and he went back into real estate development, But he was still the skeezy old skis, still up to his skeezy no good tricks. (laughs) According to a 2014 D Magazine article, he was sued by his business partner. So they had built a high rise building and he was supposed to have a special deal where he could stay in one of the apartment units with his wife for a very low amount of money and instead didn't pay anything and refused to leave the penthouse apartment that he was supposed to leave. He had been ordered to vacate and had lived there for months and months and months beyond that. He had also taken out loans on behalf of the company and used that to fund their lavish personal life. Oh, my God. Additionally, his wife, Diana, was paid illegal commissions on the sale of units in the building, though she was not a real estate agent or a salesperson employed by their company. So the business partner who had known him forever and had actually introduced him to this girlfriend, who was then the fiance, who's now the wife, sued him. And then they tried to say that they were bankrupt. So in order to not have to pay or even get involved in the lawsuit or answer the lawsuit, the night before the case was heading to a pretrial conference, Edelman declared bankruptcy. But that didn't matter because the judge said, no, you can't you're not bankrupt. You have to deal with this. And he ended up being ordered to pay his business partner $4.5 million. Amazing. Yep. So that's, I think, the latest on Robert Edelman. And it just seems like everything that could be said about this guy was true. He was a controlling narcissist who did not believe that the rules applied to him. As they usually do. Yep, exactly. So that is our crazy the FBI faked my murder survivor story on this week's love murder. I love it. What a tale. In conclusion, I think that we could all be like a little, like Linda, we could be brave and we could also obviously have a great network of people who are willing to go to war, go to an investigation, ride or die for
0: you. So that speaks highly of Linda's relationship circle. Absolutely. And as always, feel like if you're setting up a covert operation at an isolated lake house we should a make sure that the instructions ring true pun intended of how (laughs) many times the phone rings and also maybe let's not send the hitman to the door to say say he's a hitman i'm a hitman (laughs) those are very valid points
1: trust your gut when it comes to love so no one has to fake their own death and freak out their whole family and loved ones (laughs)